You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. I know that some of you have listened to the Nomad podcast featuring our very own Joe Dolby and um, a guy called Azariah France Williams. And uh, Joe and Azariah were having a, a conversation um, about uh, deconstruction and progressive theology and all in the context of church leadership. So if you've not listened to it, I would uh, encourage you to do so. It's really interesting. Uh, you'll learn some stuff about Joe and about her story as well, but it's a really interesting conversation. And the Nomad podcasts are, are good value for just just hearing some different voices uh, and some different experiences. So um, within the context of that conversation, um, Azariah shared a story about his experience. And we're just going to listen to a couple of minutes of, of that conversation. Uh, and we're going to sort of dive right into the discussion. So there's no kind of real context or introduction, but I think the story sort of stands on its own. So Andy's just going to play that for us now. Far more comfortable now with having questions myself and far more comfortable with the questions of others. Uh, I feel less threatened. I don't feel I need to have the answers in, in such a way. And also some of the ways it's changed is things that have happened in my life, I no longer have the reasons for why those things happened. An example of that is a few weeks ago, I was reading a psalm which prompted a memory from many years ago and I was training in a Pentecostal college where we believed in the gifts of the Spirit and miracles and things like that would happen. Well, at least we said we did. And one of the students, over the period of a couple of weeks, had a debilitating illness called sportsman's knee. and went from walking around fine to being in a wheelchair. The college was adjusting. She'd moved her room from upstairs to the downstairs floor. We were working on the accessibility. And one evening, I was in the chapel, I was playing the piano, and she wheeled herself into the chapel, listened to me, just sort of tinkering away, and then asked if I'd pray for her. There's no beads of sweat, there was no crusade, uh, there's no big choir, no smoke machine. Organ, no smoke oh. machine. Well, there might have been a smoke machine. No, no, there wasn't a smoke <laughs> machine. And she just said, would you pray? And so I just went beside her. All I could think of to say was, God, you say you strengthen the feeble knees, because I knew the Bible, like the back of my hand, but then I could, you know, I could drop verses. And... And as I, uh, I said that to her, she said, my knees feel hot. And within 24 hours, she was out of the wheelchair and she was fine. That was a couple of decades back and she's still fine. And it was one of those where she went to the doctors, they took x-rays, compared them and said, we don't know what's happened, but she's better. And but the biggest shock was the people in the college that said they believed in miracles. <laughs> <laughs> But now I don't have a category for that. You know, then I did. Um, you know, I was God's man of power for the hour. <laughs> Although it was actually, it was, it was quite mild, actually. You know, there, there was no real drama with it. Mm. Uh, it was just something opened and she recovered. But I don't know how. I can't explain yeah. it in a way I would have been able mm. to before. Yeah, really. So uh, we often... Um, use that word deconstruction to, to talk about, um, to describe that process whereby our, our faith changes. Um, and in particular, I think when we talk about deconstruction, we're talking about loss. We're talking about the way in which beliefs and maybe practices which were once important to us no longer make sense. They no longer work. 
Uh, and sometimes this deconstruction can feel a bit like a wrecking ball has come through and just kind of smashed this edifice of faith into smithereens and uh, just leaving everything in ruins. Or it can be a more gradual thing, a bit more like a careful dismantling brick by brick. But either way, and where we're some, whether we're somewhere in between, things have changed, uh, and maybe quite radically. Uh, and as with any other loss... This can bring with it sadness, it brings confusion, shock, maybe even anger. It can be a very painful process. Uh, and often the trigger for deconstruction will be that we can no longer live with, with the tension, with the dissonance between what we believe, or what we feel we should believe, and the realities of life. There's this kind of tension. It's like we've built a shelter from the storms of life, which is cold and drafty, and the roof leaks when the wind is blowing in a certain direction. And we put up with it for a while, but then it gets to a point where we think, something's, we've got to do something about this. And either we're going to just destroy the whole thing and, and maybe start again, or at very least, we're going to need to engage in some major renovation. Uh, and belief in a God of miracles... A God who intervenes, a God who does things that aren't explainable very readily. That belief can be both a cause and a casualty of deconstruction because it's where that tension between belief and the realities of life, I think, becomes really sharp, doesn't it? When we're, when we're thinking about that, it can become almost unbearable. It may be that we find ourselves in that same place described by Azariah in that conversation where we've experienced things, we've seen remarkable things that, we, that are undeniable, and yet we don't quite know what to make of them now. We don't have a framework for understanding them. We don't know how to make sense of them. Of course, maybe that your experience is quite different, but either way, I think it's an important question that we want to think about this morning. We want to think about healing. What does healing look like in a progressive context? And we're doing this as part of this sort of series where we're looking at wholeness um, and, and how we might journey towards greater wholeness. Uh, and I'm aware in thinking about this, there are two kind of angles, two perspectives on this. There is our own experience of, of illness and, and disease and struggle, but also our concern to stand with others in their pain and their struggle too. Uh, and so trying to tackle the subject from both of those perspectives this morning was either going to lead to a talk which was very long or would seem really disjointed. So I'm going to tackle it from the, the first perspective, which is our own experience. But hopefully there'll be enough in there that you can then apply to thinking about how you stand with others in their struggles too, that there'll be principles and, and ideas and thoughts that will help you to see how that translates across. So first of all, Always good to start with a bit of a definition and a bit of a framework. What do we mean by healing and what does the Bible say about it? So a definition for healing from a dictionary, the process of making or becoming sound or healthy again. Okay, that's fairly uncontroversial, I think. But we could think about healing in terms of three strands, three uh, processes, if you like, or three strands of healing. First of all, uh, what we might call natural processes, so where the body does its work. So when you fight off a cold, for example, no matter how many uh, cold um, remedies you take and vitamin C you swallow, really it's the body, isn't it, doing its thing and you hope it doesn't take too long. Um, uh, so there's natural processes. There's medical intervention. 
sometimes either to speed up or to aid those natural processes, or perhaps to, to change something about our bodies through surgery or some other intervention. And then there's what we, what we might call miraculous healing, which is where God sets aside or intervenes in the first two of those processes. So that's what I want to think about this morning. Uh, because most of the time, of course, we're, what we're talking about when we talk about healing, when we're um, sort of pursuing healing for ourselves or for others, we're talking about those first two um, strands, aren't we? Most of the time, we're talking about our body's natural processes, we're talking about medical interventions, and so nothing that I'm going to say this morning is to suggest that any of that is not worthwhile and necessary and important. But I think we all know that. So if I was to say much about that, I think I'd be preaching to the choir. So what I want to think about this morning is a little bit more, is this, this thing about miraculous healing. Can we still hold on to that in a kind of progressive context, in the context of progressive theology? Are there things there that are important that we need to hold on to, even if we're not quite sure how we might do that? And so... We also want to take seriously what the Bible says. One of the kind of mantras that we have here is that we don't take the Bible literally, but we do take it seriously. And so when we're tackling a subject like this, we want to look into the Bible. We don't want to take it literally, but we do want to take it seriously. We want to grapple with what the Bible says about this. So what does the Bible say about healing? Well, in the Old Testament, as I think Joe was reminding us, there's, there's a bit of an emphasis on, on healing. One of the names of God uh, is Yahweh or Jehovah Rapha, which means the God who heals. And there are several stories in the Old Testament of, of the healing of individuals, um, including women who are thought to be unable to have children, who are able to conceive and give birth. Uh, so a number of stories about individuals. There are also some broader references as well. Uh, there's a verse that is often quoted in prayer meetings and revival meetings, 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So there is this kind of broader perspective on healing that is about uh, society and, and about the, the, the community as a whole. So in the Old Testament, we have this, this emphasis. When we come into the New Testament, uh, and we look at the Gospels in particular, healing very much takes centre stage. There's probably around a fifth of the material in the Gospels is related to healing in some way or another. Um, and we might also, uh, from our perspective, a 21st century perspective, we might understand some of the stories of deliverance in terms of healing from psychological trauma as, as well. So we might include that, some of those stories too. Uh, and Matthew 4, verse 23, gives a summary of Jesus' ministry. Uh, in these terms. He, uh, Matthew says that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So that verse indicates the centrality of healing to Jesus' ministry, but also reminds us that these acts were performed as signs of the kingdom rather than isolated events. They were in the context of Jesus preaching about the, the kingdom of God being present and, and among the people. So it's important to see that context uh, in, in, in those stories. Uh, when we look at some of the words used to describe healing, to speak about healing, the word therapeuio is used, from which we get our word therapy. Uh, but also, again, as Joe referred to this, I think, last week, uh, one of the words that's used for healing is the word so-so. 
S-O-Z-O, which carries the idea of healing the whole person. And generally, when we read the Bible, we need to, we need to kind of read it in, in that sense, that there is this, this sense that people are whole beings. There isn't this kind of breaking down of different aspects of who we are as human beings that is, is more common, perhaps, to our own context. So there's this sense of wholeness um, which is there, the healing of the whole person. And we see that holistic thing in a number of the stories. One of my favourite stories of healing um, in the Gospels is in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 5, uh, the story of the woman who touches Jesus' cloak and is healed of a, a menstrual disorder which had been troubling her for 12 years. So for 12 years, this woman had been labelled an outcast. That's what she'd had to live with, quite apart from the physical symptoms of, of her condition. And so the healing for her is complete when Jesus says to her, daughter, when he says to her, you are, you are restored to the kingdom, to, to the community, to the people of Israel. That's when the healing is complete for her. So we see this kind of, this communal aspect. And that comes out in other places too. And, and one, of the, um, one of the key verses in the rest of the New Testament is in James chapter 5, uh, where those who are sick are urged to summon the elders of the church to come and to anoint them and to pray for their healing. So we see that communal aspect of healing. So that holistic thing is not just about the whole person, but it's the person in relationship. So that's what's in view when we think about healing from a biblical perspective. So where does that leave us? when we think about this, this business of, of healing in, in, a, in a progressive context, uh, how do we hold on to this stuff? Do we need to? Do we want to discard it? Do we want to say, well, we live in a very different world. We live in a world where uh, medicine has made such incredible progress, where we understand our natural bodies and, and the processes in our, in our bodies so much better. Do we need to even think in terms of God intervening in that way? Can we not see that God just works through those processes? Well, I'd like to suggest some guidelines for us in thinking about how we might think about healing in that more miraculous, that more supernatural way. And I'm aware that both of those words are very loaded, but I think you know what I mean. Uh, I want to think about whether we can still speak in those ways uh, within a, a, the context of a progressive um, theology. So I'm going to suggest some guidelines. I've couched them as instructions just for the sake of brevity but I know that none of you are here this morning wanting to be told what to do or to believe so I'm, I'm take these as guidelines even if they seem like instructions um, some just some thoughts really that maybe might help us to process some of this stuff so the first thing to say I think is that it's important to embrace the mystery so there are two dominant messages, I think, which our culture gives to us, which can make it difficult for us to make sense of this issue. And the messages are these. First, that we can explain everything. And secondly, that we can fix things that are broken. And of course, most of the time, or a lot of the time, that's true. And we have, we have great reason to be grateful for that, don't we? Um, for the, uh, the, the kind of growth in our understanding of, of our bodies and how they work, the incredible uh, progress that's been made in terms of technology and particularly in terms of medical technology. Praise the Lord that we can say that this is so often true, that we can explain things, that we can fix things. 
But there are limits, aren't there, to our understanding and there are limits to our technology. And the reality is that for all we know and for everything that we can fix, there are times when we are ignorant and powerless. And that's the reality. There are times when we have to acknowledge the mystery of life. We have to acknowledge that there are some things that we don't understand and there are some things that we can't fix. And if we don't do that, then we're going to be in in big trouble because we're going to run up against the realities of life pretty quickly. And of course, that that extends too to our understanding of God, the God who says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see through a glass darkly, we know in part. So we need that humility that enables us to embrace the mystery, to recognise that for all that we can explain, for everything that we can fix, there is a fundamental mystery to life and to our experience of life and our relationship with God as well. The second is to accept change. Uh, It's a cliche, isn't it, to say that we live in times of enormous change in terms of our social context, but we need to accept that we change as well, that our bodies change and develop and decline. So for some of us here this morning, maybe our bodies are still developing, which is great. So for others of us, we're more in that kind of decline stage of life. But that's, that's the reality of life, isn't it? That, that we change, our bodies change, and of course, ultimately, our bodies will fail, which is another reality that our culture doesn't always allow us to accept and to embrace. But it's the one fundamental truth that we can all agree on. Our bodies will ultimately fail. And sometimes illness intervenes, doesn't it, to bring change in unexpected and unwelcome ways. Now we see this in in the Bible in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul talks about having to live with what he calls his thorn in the flesh. Whether that was uh, some kind of illness or condition or something else. The point is that it was something that he didn't want. He prayed many times for it to be taken away and it wasn't. He had to adapt and change and live with it. And uh, in her book, um, Miracles and Other Reasonable Things, uh, a book that I would recommend a reading, Uh, Sarah Bessie uh, tells the story of the car accident which nearly killed her, uh, but instead left her quite badly injured. Uh, She experienced miraculous healing. She experienced healing in her back and her neck, which was verified by doctors who said, we don't understand what's going on here. But in the following months, uh, she was forced to confront the truth that she wasn't fully healed and that she was experiencing increasing levels of pain and fatigue throughout her body. Uh, And eventually it was discovered that she'd broken her foot, which needed to be dealt with. But she was also diagnosed with fibromyalgia, uh, which is an autoimmune condition, which is incurable. Uh, And so as she grappled with despair and confusion, she felt God say to her these words, as much as you are able choose life. As much as you are able, choose life. And she says this, no matter what path I walked upon, healed or unhealed, miraculous or ordinary, the words that rose in my soul that morning, choose life, whispered that I may not have chosen this particular path, But I could, while walking it, choose to move toward life. I could choose to open myself to the possibilities of joy in it. I could choose to love and become reacquainted with with my new body. 
I could be born again, all over again. As much as you are able, choose life. So we need to accept change. Also know that health means wholeness. So this is picking up on that that biblical teaching, that biblical um, insight for us, that we need to see health uh, in this holistic way as far as possible. I think it's probably easier for us to do that now in our context. I think we're much more aware of that than than we have been in the past, perhaps. Uh, But even so, uh, it's something that we just need to keep remembering. And uh, we've got use also to the language of well-being. And writing in that context, um, uh, a writer called Alison Webster says this, which I think is quite insightful as we think about the the whole business of, of health and healing and wholeness. The opposite of well-being is not illness, but dis-ease, in the sense of unease, being ill at ease with ourselves. Well-being is not the result of cure, but of the incremental building of networks of relationships and human connection, self-esteem, self-belief, purpose, meaning, and value. So that all of those things are part of that that process of, of finding healing and wholeness. And you can see that, again, it includes this idea of the, the kind of the connectedness, the relational side of who we are as, as human beings. So I think we need to have that perspective, which is about wholeness. And fourthly, be open to God. So it may seem that so far, uh, what I've been saying is perhaps saying don't expect too much, being kind of hedging around things a little bit. So I just want to kind of be, be clear Um, I do believe that prayer makes a difference, uh, that God is involved in our lives and he wants to bless us so that we can be a blessing to others. I believe that. The biblical story of incarnation, which leads to the cross, persuades me that God cares passionately for his world and that he's engaged in its healing and its redemption. And although I've not experienced directly what I might call miraculous healing, either for myself or others. I can't and I don't want to deny the veracity of the stories of others. Whatever my worldview, whatever my understanding, I need to respect that, I believe. But I think the key to all of this is that genuine and radical openness to God, inviting him into every part of our lives. Lord, what do you want to do here is a key question. I think. And we might also add to that, what do I need to do too? Because it's about a conversation. It's about participating with God in what he's doing. It's not about God kind of reaching down from on high and zapping us. It's about God working with us in that journey towards wholeness. But that that radical openness to God that says, Lord, I'm here. And yet, my leg is really painful and I'd really like it not to hurt, but I know that's not, that doesn't define me. That's not who I am. I'm, I'm me. Lord, what do you want to do in my life? What are you saying to me at the moment? Is there something else? You know, going back to the, the kind of the building metaphor, have you ever been in that situation where you've pulled some wallpaper off the wall and the plaster has come down as well and you've discovered all sorts of stuff behind it? Well, you know, sometimes when we ask God those those difficult and those challenging questions like Lord what do you want to do maybe he says well if you pull that piece of wallpaper away there's there's something underneath there that needs sorting out actually Uh, and so 
That, I believe, is the key to, to this, is, is that, that radical openness to God that says, here I am, all of me. What do you want to do in my life at this point in time? What are the steps that I need to take with you towards wholeness? And then finally, don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. One of the things, again, which in, term, in the context of progressive theology, one of the key sort of ideas, I think, is that when we, we talk about the kingdom of God, when we talk about the shalom, the, the blessing of God that we all long for, we have this understanding that it's here, but it's not yet fully here. It's now and it's not yet. We live between the times. We have those glimpses of God, don't we? We have, we have that, those tastes of that, that heavenly banquet. And then it's gone and life goes on as before. And, and it can be frustrating and it can be difficult. It can be painful living in that waiting, living in that between time. And so it's really important for us that we don't give up hope as we're waiting. And again, going back to Sarah Bessie's book, she describes a key moment in her experience of healing when she was really struggling with the effects of of her accident. And, And into her pain and her depression, God spoke these simple words to her. You are not forgotten, which was absolutely what she needed to hear at that time. You are not forgotten. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever prayers are not being answered at this point in time, you are not forgotten. You are not alone. And that's crucial, isn't it? We need to know that. When we're in that place of waiting, when we're struggling with pain and disappointment and confusion, we need to know that we're not forgotten. We need to know that in terms of our relationships with others. We need to, in terms of our care for each other, It's a very powerful thing, isn't it? Just to let someone know that they're not forgotten. Even if we can't think of anything else to say or anything else to do, just to remind someone that they're not forgotten, that they're on our hearts, that we care. But to know too that we're not forgotten by God. However much it seems like we're preaching to to the ceiling, praying to the ceiling and, and nothing's coming back, we are not forgotten. God would say that to us in those times particularly. Father God, we thank you that we see in Jesus how much you love us and this world that you've created, the extent to which you will go to rescue and redeem and restore. We thank you that we are not forgotten, however much it might feel like that at times. We ask that you would give us the grace and the strength as far as we are able to choose life. Amen. You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.